Right, welcome to another Broken English Podcast. If you're unsure of what a Broken English Podcast is or a Broken English Films Podcast, it is myself or Bola or any of the Broken English Films company talking about our film productions or what we're thinking about film or whatever that happens to be. Broken English Films itself came about, well, several years ago. That's an understatement. But we're now bringing it to fruition now in a great number of ways. We've got plenty of great material, and if you don't like it, it's on you, not on us. The name itself came up as a result of us wanting to create things in not just English itself, but a multitude of languages, and using the term to reference how people need to communicate their thoughts and their ideas and sometimes it doesn't always come out the right way but art and media and any form of creativity really are trying to communicate with people and have people understand or find something or draw something from now we don't want to just do things in english we want to do things in multiple languages and we will speak broken spanish broken German, broken French, etc. But it's about trying to communicate ideas, stories and tales and trying to actually have someone learn something and or feel something or disagree with whatever you happen to be saying or doing. Nothing is off the table and nothing is wrong there. This particular episode, I'm going to talk to you for a minute or two about Ruptured. Ruptured was written over the course of about six years in a few different places, a few different countries. The, the majority would have been written in Vancouver, but I also wrote it in Montreal where it's set and in San Francisco down there visiting my brother. The story was inspired by a conversation with my father. I don't remember whether we were walking to a Starbucks, whether we were at a Starbucks, it's always got to be Starbucks because Starbucks give you free refills. And at that point, their point system was pretty fucking amazing. But now, not so much. Nevertheless, it was at a Starbucks and we were talking about how every, every town and every city, unless you're right by every potential resource, would be about six weeks away from collapse. And it would end up being a situation where if the trucks aren't going back and forth to the city, supplying the different goods, supplying petroleum, supplying food, etc., we would have things fall apart very rapidly. If it's a situation between my family eating or your family eating, obviously you want yours to eat and obviously I want mine to eat. If it's a situation between my friends eating or your friends eating, again, the same extends. And if there's a shortage of everything, if you can't go to the shops and just buy whatever whenever you feel like it, obviously there's a problem that's going to arise. And so Ruptured's main draw when writing it was wanting to come up with how we get to this particular world. Then it all became particularly clear to me how I wanted to do it and how I wanted the story to go. The story in season one revolves around Marie Sereda. She's a 25-year-old sociopathic barista. She works at a hotel coffee shop in Montreal and is obsessed with the Egyptian 
times, the Egyptian period. Throughout that time, they lived very differently to how we do today. The way we do today is we retain nothing, or very little, and our skills aren't what they would have been 20, 30 years ago. Most people nowadays tend to revolve around checking things on their phone, all forms of information, be they video tutorials, audio tutorials, or the text. If you have a question to ask, the internet can answer it. So the internet has been both a blessing and a problem because it means we aren't as self-reliant because we always expect something to be there if we ever end up falling. That's what the internet provides. And Murray has become increasingly annoyed at this reality and the fact that nobody really bothers anymore. So she goes upon a quest of trying to apply to schools to further learn how to program and to be fully savvy on these sorts of things. She taught herself a great amount dabbled in a bit of hacking as she developed her language learning skills just to kind of work out how it flowed. But she seems to keep being rejected by different schools when she tries to apply because of her financial status, because she's a student, and basically a system whereby she's being kept at that level because if you don't have the money to get the loan to go further, da -da 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 -da, you end up in a cycle. This grates on her, and as she sees the rest of the world continually revolving in the same way, she decides, I need to give the world a kick up the arse and restart it all. And I want it to be something where we aren't just lazy, for lack of a better term, but where we actually start learning, regrowing and doing things for ourselves. And she, so she goes about a quest of trying to really, really change things. She spends a lot of time with a very close friend of hers named Walter Stolitzinia. And you will find out exactly what happens on their quest. Now, when I was writing Ruptured, I listened to a very specific playlist. That playlist will be linked in the show notes with the track listing and you'll be able to listen to it at your leisure. Though I'm really going on an ego trip here when I'm talking about it, I write in a very specific form. I have a playlist which tends to be an eclectic mixture of different things, and depending on where I am in the story, depending on where I am in the scene, I'll repeat a song, I'll revert back to a song, I'll use it to get me back in the mood of writing, and I'll use it to sway the emotion that I was enjoying adding to the material as I was writing it. That may work for you, that may not. If it does, great. If it doesn't, hopefully you like the musical selection, which has been or will be linked. And that's about it for Ruptured. So it seems like almost every week on this podcast we discuss Netflix. And that's because it really has done an amazing job of permeating through to everything that there is with regards to theatre, as in movie theatres, and television in general. And within the last couple of weeks, or within the last few weeks, that really has been exemplified by the two latest juggernaut film releases. Both are obviously up for a variety of awards because of how good they are. <laughs> and, I mean, for the subscription price that you pay 
for Netflix. This is just phenomenal. Now, Netflix share price has gone down a bit. I don't really know why. They're predicting it's going to lose 4 million subscribers next year, which will impact their bottom line. And of course, there's more and more to do with that. But if you look at the price of admission, your month of Netflix for getting The Irishman, a nearly four-hour film with Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, <laughs> Ray Romano, and Robert De Niro, not to mention Action Bronson and uh, Bobby Cannavale and a plethora of other people that actually were involved. Plus, Marriage Story with Adam Driver and Charlize Theron. It's a no-brainer that you would pay for that. I mean, those films which have had very limited theatrical runs, which we talked about in a previous podcast, those films alone are worth your one month in Netflix. And you can watch them as many times as you want over the course of the month. But without me championing their business model too much and their pricing model, etc., 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 let me talk a little bit about both films. First and foremost, The Irishman with the length of the film can really be watched as a miniseries, as people have alluded to, by segmenting it. I think it was Twitter that they started talking about the I Paint Houses version is the first 49 minutes or whatnot, and then there's a secondary version which is like the next one minute, sorry, one hour, ten minutes, and then there's the remainder of the film. So you could watch it as a mini-series, or you can watch it as a film in one fell swoop, or you can watch it at your own leisure and re-watch it and develop the story as best you wish. But it's done exceptionally well. And the first time I watched it, I saw it in segments. Not in those particular segments, just based on how I was doing energy-wise, whether I'd reached a certain level of fatigue or not or what, and how that went over the course of the film. I did watch it a second time. And the reason I watched it a second time is because I wanted to see whether the parts that dragged continued to drag when I'd slept, or after I'd been, you know, had a coffee or five, or whether it actually worked as a piece. And it does. It's exceptional. I really, really enjoyed it. I can't say this enough. It was a film that apparently was in the works for a good 10 years, based off of the book, um, I Paint Houses. And Scorsese and De Niro had done their best to make sure that this film made it through and actually got produced. Netflix happened to be the ones championing the cash behind it, and it went from there. The film is done exceptionally in a great number of ways, and I know I've used that word more times than you probably wanted to hear, but one of the reasons that it's so compelling is the way that it's told and the way that it works visually. And what I mean by that is there are many, many times when you watch a film and it's told through a series of flashbacks, and sometimes it's done in a fluid manner whereby the flashbacks seem organic, and at other points it feels very forced. This manages to chop up the present-day reminiscing flashback versus the previous actual history in a very, very cleverly planned manner. Now, for those of you that don't know, Robert De Niro is nearly 80 years old. 
Joe Pesci, round about the same. I believe Pacino's the same, and I know Scorsese's the same. But Scorsese isn't seen on camera, so that's neither here nor there. But throughout the majority of the film, De Niro is considerably younger. Now, they've made the decision not to go with a younger actor or someone else that looked like De Niro for overall flow of the way the character behaves, the way they sit, stand, etc, etc, etc. This was a fantastic choice. If you look at the way the film flows, it because of the fact that they didn't use a separate actor, it just seems fluid. And what they did was, rather than actually go with a secondary casting choice, they used CGI to the best of their ability and managed to de-age Pacino, De Niro and Pesci, the leads within the film who are all close to 80 but play different ages within the picture. They did this through a couple of very interesting um, manners. What they did was apparently De Niro had said that he had to recreate a scene from Goodfellas in his current form, so at the age he is now, and they matched the way he looks now to the way he looked then and various other things. But of course that's limited because we're talking about one scene. That's just to get a rough idea of where we should go. I'm assuming they did something similar with Pacino and something similar with Pesci in terms of getting the rough idea of how the face relates to the current face. But in order to actually start to work out how they were going to do this, the DP and the team involved with the special effects created an absolutely ingenious manner of determining how one's face would be mapped. What they ended up doing was they had the standard camera filming and then for reference, instead of doing what they do in a lot of CGI projects, which is to put dots at different places on someone's face, which is, of course, very distracting because when you're staring at them, you want to look at them like they're just a person you're playing off of as an actor. You don't want to be distracted because there's a green dot here, there's one by there, you, there's one by there, because then your attention's going to waver like crazy. What they did was they set up a camera on either side of the main camera. So there was basically a three-camera setup. The two on the outside would be sending infrared mapping or points of reference, dots and points of reference, to the actors' faces, so that then afterwards, they could work out how things could be remapped with the CGI. And if you watch the film, unless you're really trying to work out that it was done with computer graphics, it basically flows. It's pretty seamless. Now, The Irishman itself... <laughs> It's just, it's done in a manner which really, really shows the strengths of the director. Um, Scorsese helps paint a picture through really careful coaxing of older actors in a way that you cannot tell that they're acting of different ages. So apparently what he'd done was during these different scenes or periods of the different characters' lives, he paid distinct attention to the speed in which they spoke, 
the ways in which they moved and wanted it to appear, you know, really force these older actors to move more quickly or speak more quickly or handle things in a much more rapid manner so that when they did have their skin and their face de-aged through the CGI, the movements would be there to match and there would be no uh, offset by the audience going, oh, wait, wait, why is this... Um, 40 whatever year old man moving like an 80 year old all these little bits of attention to detail helped solidify what a great picture the Irishman was and last but by no means least there was the way in which it was filmed the DP did a tremendous job both in the colour choices and in and in the way that the whole thing was done now, I know that that was a really shitty way of describing it because that seemed <laughs> like I haven't thought it out. But trust me, if you start just rambling into a microphone doing a solo podcast when you're trying to do it with someone else, it ends up being that you don't have time to really catch up with your own thoughts because you're talking at a million miles an hour. Essentially, the DP managed to create beautiful tapestries of colour, referring to different periods in the history of the tale, and just wrapped it up superbly i do recommend the irishman i wouldn't call it one of i wouldn't call it scorsese's best picture but i definitely loved it on top of that marriage story wow marriage story is i i can't quite decide whether it is my favorite or my second favorite film of 2019 i think i'm leaning towards it being my favorite uh, the only one that sort of came close to having the same impact on me was Parasite. But Marriage Story is superb. And if it ends up cleaning up at all award shows come early 2020, you won't find me disappointed. I thought it was... I thought it was the way you depict a long-term relationship on screen as best as one could be done. And the unravelling of it and the whole idea of going through divorce and custody and so on and so forth. You have Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, both of which played excellently. They performed to a gobsmackingly perfect degree. You have Noah Baumbach, who had <laughs> written a screenplay which apparently every actor had to adhere very specifically to the dialogue that was written it wasn't really on offer to ad-lib this or to put this word there or things like that he wrote an airtight screenplay which then he directed in a manner which if any of you happen to enjoy making films or look at films with an objective eye you would again just applaud i mean there are certain shots within the film where the lines of symmetry, where they're mirroring, where the division is is tangible. With one character on one side of the screen and another on another in a manner whereby when they're arguing, it feels real. <laughs> Just from start to end, superb. Utterly 
superb. I cannot speak highly enough about the way that it was written, the way that it was performed. Like, this is a, a complete film right here. A complete film that is just a relationship drama of things going awry, of the beginnings of a relationship whereby you love everything to do with your partner through everything that follows there if it's reaching its demise. Marriage Story, you must go on to Netflix, click that film. Probably don't watch it with someone you're arguing with, but <laughs> yeah. Being at a loss for words when you're recording audio is kind of stupid because it doesn't really translate. But I think you're able to grasp by my pauses how much I enjoyed both The Irishman and Marriage Story. And Marriage Story, if it were playing in theatres locally, I would definitely go and see and I would definitely advise people to go and see. I believe it might be playing in New York, so if you're listening in New York... And the, you're listening to when the podcast comes out, because it's probably not going to be playing if you listen to this six months from now or any time after that. But Marriage Story, superb. Don't know if I'd see The Irishman in theatres because of its length and, you know, people do need to pee on occasion. But I definitely would recommend a home viewing. And, yeah, to keep up with those Netflix subscriptions, because though I hear Disney Plus is really thriving... I myself am not as enthused by it. I had a friend with a Disney Plus account and we watched Lady and the Tramp and it was okay. I mean, it missed the We Are Siamese song, which they removed, um, which a few people I've spoken with have had an issue with, what with the fact that it was referring to Siamese cats, but the idea of the contention around that and the potential changing of voices i grasp and i get although yeah as i say it was one of the signature songs so it's one of those things when you remake things i also did end up seeing the lion king which i thought was done really well i actually really enjoyed it sorry mr john or elton or however you want to be referred to as don't know if it's his real name i thought it was a good film i enjoyed it I liked the fact that the animals' faces weren't overly smiley and animated like the cartoon, but it felt like a real... <laughs> I was about to say it felt like a real version of the story. But uh, I don't believe animals can talk, despite the fact that we often think they can. So seeing them speaking in a manner whereby they weren't really putting on a big smile, I thought actually worked. And I, I'm sure children will appreciate it as well. Aladdin didn't really grab me. Um, yeah. I mean, Disney Plus, I think, is going to do well because they have the comic book content. They have Star Wars, I believe. Well, because of the fact that they've acquired Fox, of course, they have The Simpsons and they have a bunch of other titles. But thus far, it's not dragging me in. I am potentially going towards Apple TV Plus, or is it Apple Plus? I'm not sure. Because of the fact that they look like they have some pretty great originals. I don't care where you fall with M. Night Shyamalan, but I think the man's made some great content. There's an M. Night Shyamalan original. There's one I saw, which I can't actually think of the title offhand, but it has 
Aaron Paul and I believe Octavia Spencer in it. That also looked great. There's C, which though he isn't here right now, Mr. Omodara had a small role in. So if you do happen to see the TV show C on Apple TV, you might see Bowler in there. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Of course, always we are working on our own productions and moving things forward with Broken English. So if you are interested in what's going on with Broken English Films, go towards social media, type in Broken English Films. You'll be able to find us on Twitter. You'll be able to find us on Instagram and on Facebook. I mean, we're, we're not very active on them at the moment, but if you want to get involved then those would be places to start following us and of course at brokenenglishfilms.com so for the time being i'm gonna say hasta luego uh, or hasta pronto and we will be back next week with another podcast to keep you entertained and keep this going further <laughs>